This is Space Time, Series 19, Episode 79, for broadcast on the 9th of November, 2016. Space Time is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You can download Space Time as a free twice-weekly podcast just about everywhere, including iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, Bytes.com, YouTube, SoundCloud, Audioboom, and from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com. The show is also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science 360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C. Coming up on Space Time, a crack in Earth's magnetic shield. Over 15,000 potentially deadly near-Earth asteroids discovered. And NASA opens a new deep space communications network dish near Canberra. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. A crack has been detected in Earth's magnetosphere. A report in the journal Physical Review Letters claims the crack, which lasted over two hours, was caused by a powerful blast from the sun, known as a coronal mass ejection, or CME. The blast sent a huge cloud of plasma towards Earth from the sun's upper atmosphere, the corona. The plasma cloud slammed into the Earth, compressing the planet's magnetic field, the magnetosphere, from 11 to just four times the planet's radius. Earth's magnetosphere usually extends over a radius of several million kilometres. It acts as Earth's first line of defence, shielding the planet and life on it from the continuous flow of high-energy solar radiation and cosmic rays. Scientists detected the crack using the gamma-ray astronomy Petroelectron Volt Energy's Phase 3, or GRAPES-3, muon telescope located at the Cosmic Ray Laboratory in India. Numerical simulations performed by the GRAPES-3 collaboration indicate Earth's magnetic shield temporarily cracked for about two hours during magnetic reconnection, which occurs when separate magnetic field lines join together, releasing a burst of energy. The crack, which occurred on June 22nd last year, was detected because it allowed increased levels of galactic cosmic ray particles of around 20 gigaelectron volts to enter Earth's atmosphere. Cosmic rays are mostly composed of intensely high-energy protons, with a smaller fraction, around 10%, composed of atomic helium nuclei, known as alpha particles, and the remaining 1% made up of heavier nuclei of elements such as carbon, iron and lead. While some cosmic rays are generated by the Sun, most originate from beyond the solar system and are thought to be produced by highly energetic events such as exploding stars called supernovae and feeding supermassive black holes called AGNs or active galactic nuclei. The highest energy cosmic rays ever detected was something like 3 million times more powerful than the highest energy gamma ray photons ever detected and some 40 million times more energetic than particles accelerated by the world's largest atom smasher, the Large Hadron Collider at CERN. Once cosmic rays hit Earth's atmosphere, they can produce showers of secondary particles such as photons, electrons and more massive versions of electrons called muons which can make it all the way down to the planet's surface. The coronal mass ejection which triggered the crack in the magnetosphere also triggered severe geomagnetic storms that generated aurora and radio signal blackouts at higher latitudes. Earth's magnetic field bent these particles about 180 degrees from the day side to the night side of the planet where they were detected as bursts by the GRAPES-3 muon telescope. 
Solar storms can cause major disruptions by overloading electrical power grids, shorting out global positioning systems, satellite operations and communications networks. The GRAPES-3 muon telescope is the world's largest and most sensitive cosmic ray observatory. It uses an array of around 400 detectors called scintillators located over an area of 25 square kilometres in order to monitor cosmic rays entering Earth's atmosphere. Over 15,000 potentially deadly near-Earth asteroids have now been discovered by astronomers. Researchers, mostly funded by NASA through either the Catalina Sky Survey in Arizona or the PanStars project in Hawaii, are now detecting something like 30 new asteroids in near-Earth orbits, so-called near-Earth objects, or NEOs, each week. A near-Earth object is defined as an asteroid or comet with the potential to impact the Earth. NEOs have orbits which periodically bring them within about 195 million kilometres of the Earth. That equates to about 1.3 astronomical units, an astronomical unit being the average distance between the Earth and the Sun, which is around 150 million kilometres. The number of catalogued asteroids now known to be approaching Earth has grown rapidly since the count reached 10,000 only three years ago. The discovered NEOs are part of a much larger population of well over 700,000 known asteroids in our solar system. Astronomers estimate they've now found, they think, about 90% of all the NEOs larger than a kilometre. However, they think they've only found about 10% of asteroids in the 100 metre range and only about 1% of all the asteroids in the 40 metre range. The European Space Agency's Space Situational Awareness Program in Italy will combine new NEO discoveries with existing European telescope data for all objects for which an Earth impact probability can't be ruled out. ESA astronomers were instrumental in imaging and then confirming the orbit of asteroid 2016 RB1, which grazed the Earth on September the 7th this year, passing just 34,000 kilometres above the ground, lower than the orbits of many satellites. So, why is it important to keep an eye on asteroids in our neighbourhood? Well, as any dinosaur can tell you, asteroid impacts have the potential to wipe out most life as we know it. Scientists are fairly sure that some 66 million years ago, a giant space rock, an asteroid about 10 kilometres across, slammed into the Earth, causing a mass extinction event that killed over 70% of all life on the planet, including all the dinosaurs larger than birds. Their demise led to the rise of the mammals and, of course, eventually humans. The jury is still out on whether that was a good thing. The smoking gun evidence for the so-called KT boundary event asteroid impact comes from a massive 66-million-year-old crater in what is now Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula. That crater was generated by a 10-kilometre-wide asteroid slamming into the planet at over 50,000 kilometres per hour. The asteroid raised temperatures to around 5,000 degrees Celsius as it burst through the atmosphere. Hitting the planet at an angle of 30 degrees, its impact vaporised a trillion tonnes of Earth in a second, in the process creating the 180-kilometre-wide, 10-kilometre-deep Chicxulub crater extending way out into the Gulf of Mexico. Any living thing within sight of the impact was killed instantly either by the heat of the impact itself or by the actual blast shock wave caused by the asteroid. A tsunami several kilometres high was generated by the impact, flooding what is now the Americas, Africa and Europe. Within minutes, the impact sent a searing vapour cloud of poisonous gas spreading over North America, killing almost all life. 
burning ejector from the impact crater was thrown high into the upper atmosphere, eventually raining down its fire over the entire planet and starting global firestorms which incinerated entire continents. The dust from the impact and smoke from the subsequent firestorms blanketed the entire planet, blocking out sunlight and heat and creating an impact winter which lasted for months if not years. This cosmic collision is called the KT boundary event because it marks the delineation between the Cretaceous period, before the impact, when dinosaurs still ruled the world, and the Tertiary era, which followed. In fact, there's even an actual KT boundary line which covers the entire planet, a dark iridium-rich layer between the Cretaceous and Tertiary. Iridium's a very rare mineral on Earth, but it's common in asteroids. This was the fifth mass extinction event in the Earth's geologic history. Interestingly, scientists believe that had the KT asteroid hit the Earth just about anywhere else, the dinosaurs would probably have survived, and humans probably would never have evolved beyond tiny shrew-like mammals. That's because the exact spot where the asteroid hit contained massive amounts of gypsum. As this gypsum was vaporised by the heat of impact, it produced a toxic mixture of chemicals including sulphur dioxide and the greenhouse gas carbon dioxide. The sulphur compounds were especially toxic, forming little globules that persisted in the atmosphere for up to 100 years. The sulphur also mixed with seawater which was vaporised by the impact to produce a powerful sulphuric acid rain which would then have fallen over the entire planet. So, in addition to a nuclear winter-type global cooling, the planet and all life on it would have also been choked on carbon dioxide and suffered showers of caustic acid. And the one thing all astronomers are certain about is that another asteroid impact on Earth isn't just likely, it's guaranteed. The only question is, when? NASA has formally commissioned its latest dish at the Canberra Deep Space Communications Complex near Tidbin Bella. The new 34-metre antenna, DSS-36, is part of a $120 million upgrade by NASA to increase capacity at its Canberra facility by building two new dishes, the other being DSS-36's twin, DSS-35, which opened two years ago. The new dishes join two other 34-metre and 170-metre operational parabolic antennas at the complex designed to provide telemetry, radiometric tracking, spacecraft command, monitor and control functions with the American Space Agency's fleet of spacecraft exploring the solar system. A sixth dish, the 64-metre CSIRO Parks Radio Telescope, can also be plugged in to the Deep Space Communications Network when needed to increase capacity. The Canberra Complex, which is managed for NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory by the CSIRO, forms part of NASA's Deep Space Communications Network, which also includes five antennas at the Goldstone Tracking Station in California's Mojave Desert and a further seven dishes at the Madrid Tracking Station in Spain. The Canberra facility also works closely with the European Space Agency's new Norcia Tracking Station north of Perth to provide support for ESA missions. NASA's Glenn Nagel says the new antennas already started tracking dozens of operational missions across the solar system. So yeah, this is sort of a combination of six and a half years actually to build two new dishes here on site and we're now launching our brand new dish, Deep Space Station 36, our new 34 metre beam wave guide antenna. So yeah, it's kind of grown out of the ground over the last few years. A lot of uh, electronics are all housed underground in a big sort of concrete cylinder and then you've got the big dish on top, beautiful white parabolic dish that can communicate with spacecraft 
aircraft right across the solar system. Now, these aren't little things we're talking about. These are humongous, and I think that's a correct scientific term there. This new 34-metre diameter dish, which weighs a just the dish is 139 tonnes, so they are sizable bits of machinery. It has this really great capacity with additional surface accuracy, picking up very, very weak signals, high sensitivity. It has a first stage 20 kilowatt transmitter that will be upgraded over the next couple of years to increase capacity again for higher transmission rates. And it's very sensitive in the KA band radio frequencies, very high radio frequencies. And this is something that all missions are really asking for now. They want to get more data back to Earth, so you have to work in higher and higher frequencies. Ted Binbilla we used to call I think it's simply referred to as the Canberra Deep Space Complex now. Yes yeah, so the Canberra Deep Space Communication Complex so we're part of NASA's Deep Space Network and we're managed in on NASA's behalf by the CSIRO. So our job every day is to send commands to spacecraft so they know where to go, what to do every day and then to receive all that data back which we process, get off to the Jet Propulsion Labs in California. They then distribute it out to the science teams right around the world so that they can know what their spacecraft is doing and then of course we share all the beautiful pictures and information to the internet so the whole world can share in the adventure. This is part of a network involving three deep space antennas, one in Canberra, one in uh, Goldstone, California and one in Madrid. Yes, so you need three sites uh, around the world so as the Earth turns there's always one station watching every part of the solar system because we have spacecraft everywhere. There are over 40 missions out there right now. They represent 27 different nations around the world so we're not just handling missions for NASA but for the Russians, India, Japan, all the European nations. So it's really busy out there and it's only going to get busier, especially when we start sending humans beyond Earth orbit again in the next few years. And just recently you're assisting with the European Space Agency's mission to land Schiaparelli on the surface of Mars. Yes, yeah, so we were tracking both the, the orbiting craft, the Trace Gas Orbiter, and Schiaparelli. Unfortunately, Schiaparelli didn't meet the end that everybody wanted to, but they learned a lot from that, and that will put the Europeans in a very good position to have a successful landing with their rover in 2020. They have their own dishes in Australia. They've got one at New Norcia, and they've got others around the world as well. Why uh, bring uh, Canberra into it? They're quite limited, the ones that they have. The Europeans primarily use them for relatively close communication activities. But when it comes to the really distant spacecraft, they always come back to the deep space network around the world so that we can provide that communication link. But we do work very much hand-in-hand with our colleagues right around the planet. And right now, MAVEN, of course, is making news. Yes, the MAVEN spacecraft is doing great studies of the atmosphere of Mars, learning about its composition, about how it's disappearing over many billions of years. It's another indicator to the story of potential life at that planet. And we have really some incredible spacecraft. Juno is out at Jupiter doing great work. Cassini still operating out at Saturn after nearly 13 and a half years now. And we're still talking to the Voyager spacecraft that have been out there for over 39 years now. And New Horizons is only just 15 months after it did that historic flyby of Pluto. New Horizons is now only just finished sending all that data back to Earth. Yeah, it was literally only just in the last week that we received the last data from the actual Pluto encounter, so it was a 15-month return of all that information. And now, of course, that, that's not the end of the New Horizons mission. It's now heading out to visit a Kuiper Belt object with the fairly unromantic name of 2014 MU69, but it will fly by this object on January 1st, 2019. So Stuart New Day will be right here tracking that spacecraft. That's Glenn Nagel from NASA's Deep Space Communications Complex in Canberra.
Japan has launched its new Himawari 9 weather satellite aboard an H-2A rocket from the Tanegashima Space Center south of Tokyo. Powered by its single LE-7 liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen main engine, together with two strap-on solid rocket boosters, the 53-metre-tall H-2A blasted into the sky over the North Pacific Ocean. The solid rocket boosters, or SRBs, were jettisoned after 100 seconds of flight, leaving the main core stage engine to continue burning for another 300 seconds before MECO, or main engine cutoff. Shortly afterwards, the first stage separated and the payload fairing was jettisoned. The upper stage then ignited its single LE-5B liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen rocket motor to deliver its payload into a geostationary transfer orbit. The 3,500-kilogram Himawari-9 is the second of two new third-generation meteorological satellites launched by the Japanese Aerospace Exploration Agency, JAXA. Its sister satellite, the Himawara-8, was launched also on an H-2A rocket in October 2014. The two satellites will eventually be parked near each other in geostationary orbit 35,800 kilometres above the equator at roughly 140.7 degrees east. That gives them a line of sight to both Japan and Australia. Together, they'll provide the Japanese Meteorological Agency and the Australian Bureau of Meteorology with visible infrared and near-infrared images of cloud cover, sea surface temperatures and particle movements from volcanic eruptions. Built by Mitsubishi and Boeing using a DS-2000 bus, the Himawara-8 and Himawara-9 satellites use data collection subsystems fitted with multiple KA and KU band frequency transponders for communications between spacecraft, ground stations and remote weather outposts. Both satellites use an advanced imager primary instrument, providing high-resolution multispectral imaging across 16 channels, including red, green and blue visible wavelength bands, to create true colour images of the Earth. The other channels provide greater insights into different characteristics of the atmosphere, including wind and cloud cover, temperatures, precipitation and the distribution of aerosols, including volcanic ash in the atmosphere. The spacecraft also carry space environmental data acquisition monitors, recording proton and electron fluxes in the spacecraft's orbit to help characterise the local radiation environment. The Himawari 8 and 9 each carry enough fuel for a 15-year lifespan. However, they're limited by their science instruments, which have an operational life of only about eight years. This week's flight was the 31st for the H-2A rocket and the second H-2A launch this year. Well, as we predicted on Spacetime last week, China has carried out the maiden flight of its biggest ever rocket, the new Long March 5. The 57-metre-tall heavy-lift launch vehicle blasted into orbit from Beijing's new Wenchang spaceport located in the South China Sea. 
The island complex was chosen as a site because it's closer to the equator, which provides additional launch assistance from Earth's rotation. The new heavyweight launcher is capable of lifting over 25 tonnes into low Earth orbit. That's more than the European Space Agency's Ariane 5 ECA and Russian Proton launchers, and roughly the same as America's United Launch Alliance's Delta IV Heavy. The Long March 5 gives Beijing a long sought-after heavy lift capability to send large payloads into orbit for a future Chinese space station and also for proposed mining projects on the moon. The Long March 5 core stage is equipped with two YF-77 engines, the first high-thrust cryogenic engines developed in China. The YF-77 is powered by liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen propellants burning for 7 minutes and 55 seconds in the first stage. The Long March 5 is designed to use a range of different strap-on boosters to meet specific mission requirements. Each of these boosters is equipped with two YF-100 engines burning kerosene and liquid oxygen for 2 minutes and 53 seconds. The maiden flight used four strap-on boosters providing a total of 10 rocket motors delivering a staggering 2.4 million pounds of thrust to lift the stack into the darkened skies. The upper stage uses two YF-75D engines, also burning liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen. Once in orbit, the third stage, known as the Yuanjing Space Tug, was deployed, carrying the Shijiang-17 spacecraft into geostationary transfer orbit. The four-ton Shijiang-17 is an experimental satellite designed to test a range of new technologies, including an ion propulsion system, for use on future Chinese spacecraft. That's the show for now. You can subscribe and download Space Time as a free twice-weekly podcast through iTunes, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, YouTube, Audioboom, and from SpaceTimeWithStuartGary.com. The show is also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C. This is Space Time with Stuart Gary. For more, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. Just search for Space Time with Stuart Gary.